Howdy friends, welcome to another episode of Escaping the Cave. Escapingthecave.com is my website. Fuck Twitter, that's my mantra. And there's still no Facebook page up. Neither. This is going to be episode number 66. Say gonna be because it's, uh, well, it already is. It's already been recorded. I'm voicing this specific piece right here on February the 29th. 2020, it's Leap Day. What a hell of a day to put out a podcast. Leap Day. Anyway, yeah, this stuff was recorded earlier this week. Broke it up into three episodes in the end. And I'm going to continue or wrap up, I should say, the theme on independent thought, validation, addiction. I'm really happy with the probably final 15, 20 minutes of this episode. It really drives the independent thought point home using some, I think, pretty effective examples. So, yeah, I'm pretty happy about that. Got some more stuff that I'm going to add to the end of the show as well. So, yeah, here you go. Make sure you check out the other two episodes in this series this week as well and enjoy this one. Thanks for clicking in. So with everything that I've said, let's think about if and when a person can become even intermittently detached, even a little bit, okay? Once that happens, even intermittently, It's easy to see human deception and the demand for conformity within the community. It's easy to see that rampage. I know this is an unpopular statement, and I know you're going to twitch a little bit when I say it, but people are innately deceptive. They're always acting. They always have the mask on. And not only that, this will make you twitch again. You ready for this? People are naturally tyrannical. Even as they rail against tyranny, happen to me tonight having a discussion about politics. They're railing against tyranny, but they want to impose their ideological plan, their ideological dogma upon the other half of the country that doesn't want it. People are innately tyrannical. It's human nature to try to dominate another group. That is the cold, hard, naked truth. It's written everywhere, even as people rail against despotism. They want to be a tyrant and they want to be a despot. Now, this may have something to do with the fact that there are not a lot of choices of groups to join, places to live, countries in which to live, political systems in which to live. That has a lot to do with it. I think it has a lot to do with the fact that we were designed to be in groups of about 150 people. How many tribes would be in this country if it were broken up into 150 people each? I'll imagine the warfare there, huh? <laughs> but that may be part of it. You don't have a lot of choices about groups to join, at least politically, in this country. But that doesn't change the fact that people are innately in a power struggle against someone else almost all the time. They want to conquer and dominate another group. Pay attention to that. As this year, as this political year moves forward, pay attention not just to the politicians. I'm not really talking about the politicians, but pay attention to the tone taken by people who are preaching and proselytizing one political religion, one propaganda stream or another, and listen for the indications on how they want to tyrannize the other half of the country, dominate and impose their worldview upon the entire half that does not agree with them. It doesn't matter which side. It comes from both sides. 
I've asked this question. I'm not going to go off into politics here, I promise. This, this really has nothing to do with politics, but it's a, a valid question that applies here. I've asked the question a number of times from both sides, on both sides of the political spectrum. I have asked, say on the day of your glorious victory, how do you propose to deal with the full half of the other country that does not want to live under your totalitarian system? Under your dogmatic system, how do you propose to deal with them? And there's never been a good answer. They just seem to think that on the day of that glorious victory, the other half of the country is just going to drink the Kool-Aid, lay down arms, and zing kumbaya with them. I don't think so. Especially now. We're moving so far away from that utopian vision that uh, it doesn't even need to be stated. But the point is, people are. Once they congregate into these groups... They are despots, little individual despots running around. I think, again, that's part of the human species. I think that's part of the trait. I think that's part of what happens when we enter into that herd mentality, that group mind, and that echo chamber, that tribe, that religion. We believe it, so therefore we need to impose it upon everyone else. This is the the curse of the should. You should be doing this. I believe this, so you should be doing what I believe. I got an episode coming up on shouldism at some point. So yeah, people innately deceptive. People are naturally tyrannical. How does a line go from Animal Farm? Bravery is not enough, said Squealer. Loyalty and obedience are more important. So it appears painfully obvious that tribalism's herd mind is as much a part of us as the urge to breed. And here's something simple but possibly profound. You should think about this too. Groups, tribes, and allies all require enemies. Groups, tribes, and allies all require enemies. Otherwise, what's the point? Why congregate? Maybe to help each other out, but you could do that without joining a tribe. You could live, you know, off on your own and still congregate, but not have to join into a group. You could still get together at the market, trade your wares. Why do you need a common narrative? Why do you need a cohesive narrative, an overarching um, pseudo-environment, a narrative, a story, a religion, a national group, tribal religion? Why do you need that? Why do you need that sort of psychological cohesion beyond fulfilling your basic needs? Those things all require enemies. Otherwise, what's there to ally against? If no quote-unquote threat or invading horde is present, an enemy, do the individuals disband? As I alluded to, do they go off and live in quiet and secluded peace and harmony? I mean, it seems pretty clear to me that even if there's not an enemy, one's going to be conjured up, even if necessary, from within their own ranks and attacked. To have that threat, that apparent threat, to unify the group, give them something to fight against, even some small benign growth within the body is going to be diagnosed as malignant and attacked as societal cancer. We saw this after the Soviet Union fell. We had that enemy, that common enemy, for decades. It took about a year and a half, two years, and what are we fighting against? Oh, look, Saddam. And then it was terrorism. And what is it now? Now it's each other. People need an enemy. People need something to fight against an outgroup to try to conquer and dominate. And what makes it worse is sometimes, sometimes occasionally, these growths really are malignant. How do you tell the difference between the fake ones and the real cancer within the the body politic or the society? 
And also, would cancer ever know it's cancer? Yeah, would cancer ever see itself as cancer, or would it envision itself on a righteous crusade against the oppressive injustice of healthy cells? Would you see yourself as cancer? How would you self-perceive? Now, don't misunderstand me here. Don't make assumptions. This metaphor is not ideologically specific, nor is it confined to politics. And in many ways, and to varying degrees, I think it's nearly universal, applied in so many different areas around human life. And I think a clue to that sort of manifests itself in this uh, tendency to see our group and see ourselves as the chosen ones who are here to save the world. Or to save society, or rescue society, to make America great again, or take our country back, or take us toward utopia. We are the chosen ones. I got into this last September in the uh, Iceberg Ahoy episode. Check it out. This sort of uh, we're the chosen ones stuff is encoded into every fucking religion, cult, conspiracy theory, and political ideology. Everybody wants to put themselves in the position of being the chosen enlightened ones. Everybody. Doesn't matter. You could have a cult of lobotomized gumps, and they would think that they are the chosen ones. Create your own scenario at will here. It would happen. You put these people in a group, you isolate them off, you let them talk to each other, reinforce each other, encourage and perpetuate the delusions, the bullshit rationalizations, elephantitis, if you will, and eventually they're going to convince themselves that they are God's chosen people. God being a metaphor or literal, however you want to see it, they will eventually do that. It's encoded in the human DNA. It's our infantile ego concocting a shared, shared egocentric mythological narrative. The internal construct explaining the world with us at the middle of it. And us, meaning you, meaning the individual by extension via the group. Propaganda and disinformation feasts upon this. Indeed it does. And from tribalism to propaganda's manufactured groupthink to Heights Elephant, you know, the post hoc rationalization stuff, the connective tissue is social validation's dopamine hit. And that's the cyber drug as well. The crux, the core of the social media disease. Fuck coronavirus. I know it's all the rage to talk about coronavirus these days. An insatiable and global validation addiction is the pandemic that threatens to really consume us. I said this in the last episode. Intellectual sovereignty and a comforting and compulsive validation addiction. These things are diametrically opposed. These things are fully incompatible. One must be sacrificed at the other's altar. You can disguise it, all the decoratively clever post hoc fiction you like. You can twist perception. Reality will not budge. So this is a paradox. I've given it my own name. I've called it Toddzilla's Paradox. <laughs> I've tried to pick this thing apart. I've tried to blow it up, and I still haven't been able to do it, so I'm going to use it again. The only way to see and judge things clearly is to detach the identity and therefore egocentric emotions from the situation and the outcome. That's the only way you can see clearly with disinterested, dispassionate, detached eyes. Detached from the identity. Getting the dog out of the outcome fight. So you can see things clearly and objectively. That is the only way to see things as they are. However, <laughs> sapiens' greatest needs are probably social validation and this evolutionary need to belong to a tribe. 
it becomes nearly impossible to detach from an outcome, and therefore it becomes nearly impossible to detach enough to see things as they are, because it goes counter, runs counter to evolution and human nature. In the big picture, checkmate. Wanna put my tender heart in a blender, watch it spin round to a beautiful oblivion. Yes, yes, thank you, God. Oh, yes. So the two authors that I've been reading the most of in the last, I don't know, probably six weeks or so, H.L. Mencken and uh, Walter Lippmann. Not the only ones I'm reading, but those are the ones that I really focused on because they seem to see this a hundred years ago. And these two writers have sort of become my heroes because, at least in the short term, because they were not afraid to stand up and tell people what they saw. Hey, it's you. Hey, it's us. Hold the mirror up. I've got a 600-page Walter Lippmann biography that just arrived, and I, I'm not making this up. Opened it up, wanted to see how it was. You know how you do when you get a new book, right? Randomly opened it up to the page beginning with the chapter entitled, The Tyranny of the Masses. If this is the page I'm opening to, yeah, I think I'm going to like this book. And that chapter, I swear to God, I'm not making this up. That chapter was on the book that I had highlighted back uh, maybe two weeks ago. Littman's follow-up to uh, Public Opinion, which was called The Phantom Public. That's exactly what that chapter, The Tyranny of the Masses, was about. And the crux of the book, uh, Phantom Public, was basically that the public is unqualified to steer the ship of state. Primarily, I think in Lipton's view, haven't quite finished it yet, I'm doing other things, but primarily because of what I have defined as data overload. Now understand, this was 100 years ago. He was writing about this stuff, that the bewildered herd, the bewildered public cannot possibly grasp and comprehend the complexity of 1920s life. How can they be trusted to make good decisions, uh, steer the ship of state? Anti-democratic, man. This, this goes, this is why I love this guy. 1925, he was iconoclastic. He was, he was swimming against the current. You know, the wisdom of the, the all-knowing, we the people public. And he was willing to stand up, and he was willing to write about it. I find that inspiring. In this age of conformity, that example I find, personally, I find that inspiring. Data overload, lack of access to enough pertinent information to make any decisions other than those made on base, exploited emotions. Sound familiar? People making decisions because they're triggered and provoked or manipulated. So data overload, manipulation, not to mention the stuff that I have covered, the herd mind that's drunk on dopamine-laced social validation, also filleting the flock with perpetual masked performances, deceptive performances, especially in this gig economy of the Internet age, filleting the flock with tailored, agitating product in exchange for clicks and money. There's a number of reasons, too, if you're willing to do the intellectual heavy work to question the wisdom of anything resembling direct democracy, mob rule. A number of logical reasons that most people don't bother to think about when they want to presume to live in a state of mob rule or 
In other words, direct democracy. That's why we live in a republic. The founders understood this. They, people understood this thousands of years ago. That the unwashed masses cannot possibly be trusted to make important decisions. And we are proving them right. Back to the Lippmann biography, the author pointed out that at the end of public opinion, Walter Lippmann had, uh, I'll quote here, not come fully to terms with the implications of his own analysis. Now, in public opinion, he started to kind of like, oh, goodness, people, they'd be dumb. He couldn't come to terms with the implications of that. And to steal a line, Walt, I feel your pain. By the time he wrote the incredibly iconoclastic and controversial Phantom Public, he knew he had no choice but to lean in with the stuff that he had figured out while writing public opinion. There are problems with democracy. Intrinsic problems that, if not safeguarded, will steer the ship into a reef and sink it. And again, remember, it's so important to remember this was 100 years ago. When radio was in its infancy. We're in the internet age now. I'm telling you. The thread stretching from Gustav Le Bon to Mencken to Lippmann to Bernays to Alul will be getting back too soon to McLuhan to Postman to Zuckerberg to Typhoid Jack, Harari, Jonathan Haidt, Dr. Eli, Nicholas Carr. The thread stretching from all of those people connecting them could lift a motherfucking train. Or at least a podcast. On Monday I am happy, on Tuesday full of joy. Wednesday I've got the faith the devil can't destroy. On Thursday and Friday, walking in the light. Saturday I've got the victory, and Sunday's always bright. Oh, glory, oh, glory, oh, glory to the Lamb. Hallelujah, I am saved, and I'm so glad I am. As human beings, it seems we have a universal collective psychosis, an addiction, a requirement for shared delusions. The grand design, pseudo-environment, the verbal universe. A universe consisting of a whole slew of disconnected, inseminated, or assumed abstractions. An imaginary external god of cosmic justice. Now virtual avatars engaging in rhetorical remote warfare between two or more competing abstract universes. A social media matrix made up of shared narratives, myths, delusions. These things are the religions of the 21st century. They serve the same purpose, making sense of an already hopelessly complex world made worse by overdosing on disconnected and uncurated information. Fueled by a contorted and corrupt evolutionary trait designed to keep us safe inside prehistoric tribes. Heights post-hoc rationalizing elephant. Group reinforcement and blind cohesion. The dopamine drip of individual and uh, group validation. The stuff becomes intoxication, the moral certitude of the herd mind, ganging up on both the outsider and the dissenting blasphemous insider. Self-awareness here is key. I think it goes without saying that this is an indictment against the human species as it stands now, and it's also not a good harbinger for democracy.
We are seeing that right now. And as much as you want to blame everybody else and as much as all of us want to point a finger and relieve ourselves of the responsibility for the situation we're in and where we're going, this is a collective problem. I almost said it was a collective defect, but I would have <laughs> contradicted myself earlier because this sort of stuff that I was just talking about, the moral certitude of the group mind and ganging up on both the outsider and the dissenting blasphemous insider, the religions of the 21st century serving the same purpose, making sense of a, a hopelessly complex world inside of a group narrative, all of that stuff, that is the default setting. So what do we do? I don't know that we're going to have a choice be perfectly honest with you, because I think, in my dystopian view, that this is just going to descend and descend and descend. Eventually, we're going to be at each other's throats. Civil strife's going to bubble up here and there. Walter Lippmann's going to prove to be a prophet, that the society that cannot tell truth from falsehood does not remain free, probably of our own doing. Civil strife in the name of security, uh, safety and security and social tranquility. Servitude is coming. At least some sort of tyranny or authoritarianism. We're going to force somebody's hand. Peace will be maintained. Do you think the prophets are going to be threatened by civil, civil discord? Uh-uh. Either way, it doesn't really bode well for the future of democracy, does it? And again, this is going to prove Lippmann correct. It's going to prove a lot of those old philosophers that always thought that there was a cycle starting with tyranny that went around to democracy, went around from there to an unenlightened public and right back to tyranny again, like a cycle. Some people think that democracy has a shelf life, like there's a formula. Again, we're proving them right. And I think the wild card is a technology that we were not prepared for, that we lack the self-awareness to use responsibly. Now, when he was speaking of government, Thoreau asked in civil disobedience, why does it always crucify Christ and excommunicate Copernicus and Luther and pronounce Washington and Franklin rebels? Why does it always crucify Christ and excommunicate Copernicus? You could throw Galileo in here as well. Well, governments consist of people, and one of the primary human traits, attaining and maintaining tribal dominance. I was just talking about this. Heretics, blasphemers, interlopers, and intellectual drifters are dangerous or will be perceived as such to that end. You see it, you feel it, you sense it whenever you encounter a doctrinaire of any breed. This need to attain and maintain tribal dominance. As Emerson said, if I know your sect, I anticipate your argument. The in-group's fanatics. Their two never quite equals two because they're uninterested in the math. It's about forcing the Auslanders to accept the tribal equation, even if it boils down to two plus two equals seven. The two is never quite two. The four is never quite four, Emerson said, because they're not interested in these equations working themselves out properly. They just want you to accept it. And this takes me back to Lippmann one more time. I'm going to repeat this quote in full. Use this a couple episodes back. This is from The Public Philosophy, 1955. He says that divorced from its original purpose and justification as a process of criticism, freedom to think and speak are not self-evident necessities. It is only from the hope and the intention of discovering the truth that freedom requires such a high public significance. The right of self-expression is, as such, a private amenity rather than a public necessity. The right to utter words, whether or not they have meaning and regardless of their truth, could not be a vital interest of a great state but for the presumption that they are the chaff 
which goes with the utterance of true and significant words. So it's kind of worth putting up with the bullshit to get the good stuff. But, he continues, when the chaff of silliness, baseness, and deception is so voluminous that it submerges the kernels of truth, freedom of speech may produce such frivolity or such mischief that it cannot be preserved against the demand for a restoration of order or of decency. If there is a dividing line between liberty and license, it is where freedom of speech is no longer respected as a procedure of the truth and becomes of the unrestricted right to exploit the ignorance and to incite the passions of the people. Then freedom is such a hullabaloo of sophistry, propaganda, special pleading, lobbying, and salesmanship that it is difficult to remember why freedom of speech is worth the pain and trouble of defending it. Walter Lippmann, Public Philosophy, 1955. That is one of my all-time favorite paragraphs right there. And it ties directly in, again, to the line that attracted me to Lippmann in the first place. The society or a people who cannot tell truth from falsehood do not remain free. If you want to keep freedom of speech, you want to keep the right to be able to utter and queef your holy righteous opinion, Into the ecosystem, it comes with responsibility of speech as well. Not from everybody. doesn't have to be from everybody, but there has to be some usefulness out there, some utility, some seeking of truth, some seeking of wisdom, something, some common goal other than power, other than flating the ego. Without that, what use is it? Freedom of speech doesn't come down from on high. God didn't give it to us. It can be taken away. We can lose it. And I'll tell you, I don't like it. I've been saying a lot of things I don't like in the last few weeks. But I I, got to say, when Facebook and these other social media companies start to take the fall for the rising and inevitable national security crisis we're going to have because of these platforms and how we, we, not the Russians, how we are using them, how we are allowing propaganda and disinformation to exploit us and grow the societal cancer. The platforms are going to take the first fall and we'll be lucky if it stops there. And this isn't on the Russians, this isn't on the government, this isn't on the politicians. It's because we, as individuals, as as Americans, with our holy First Amendment privilege, the right to free speech, don't know how to use it. Have no sense of responsibility for how to maintain it. That paragraph is profound and prescient, considering that it was written in 1955. It is not necessary to remind you of the fact that your voice, amplified to the degree where it reaches from one end of the country to the other, does not confer upon you greater wisdom than when your voice reached only from one end of the bar to the other. So to bring this episode home, was talking about groupthink, was talking about independent thought, was talking about validation addiction, the dopamine stream of the warm fellowship of the herd, right? Again, People lacking the means to tell truth from falsehood will not remain free. And it does not matter why. If we've just simply latched on to an overarching narrative because of data overload or because we're addicted to dopamine, it does not matter. If we are not seeking and tethered, at least intermittently tethered, 
to objective truth, reality, <laughs> beyond the, the propaganda streams, we're going to lose it. And yes, the default setting is to bask in that warm fellowship of the herd. We are in a predicament here, and it's very, very difficult. And something I got to thinking about tonight as I was uh, sort of writing up the last of the notes here is that occasionally you're going to find what I call the gloriously impudent souls standing apart from the flock. Every now and then you're going to find those people. They're rare. They actually thrive standing apart. They dare to think for themselves. Rare still uh, have both genius articulation and the raw courage. This is the key here. The raw courage to challenge dogma with actual truth unpopular objective truth, challenging dogma occasionally that is painful and costly to the individual. A Galileo comes to mind. He dared challenge institutional church doctrine. He removed the earth and its people (laughs) significantly from the center of the known universe. He was condemned. He was condemned by the church, placed under house arrest, but he also changed history, added to the cumulative education and culture of the entire species. He nudged evolution forward just a little bit, even though he died long before he really got his due. Albert Einstein's another one. In fact, I'm getting these two examples from an author named Walter Isaacson. He writes really good biographies, and I've got one on Einstein. I've got one on um, Da Vinci. Ben Franklin, he's got a bunch of them out there, though. I highly recommend. These These are fun books to read. I'm kind of finding a theme here. I'll get to that in a second. Impudence should have been Einstein's middle name. He's famous for it. I, I don't think I ever realized this. But he saw things differently. He believed in himself and, again, had the courage and the faith to pursue it no matter where it took him. The story most of us know is legendary. Four papers that completely revolutionized physics, all written over the course of four months in 1905. Galileo was placed under house arrest, whereas Einstein became world-renowned in his own time. But each had that one thing in common, courage. Courage and commitment to their own unique vision. An ability to discard institutional dogma and its conventional or accepted thinking. And most importantly, I think, a courage to stand up and say what they thought, what they share, what they found. That's what Emerson meant in self-reliance by God will not have his work manifest by cowards. Without the drive to pursue the truth of their work and the courage to stand against the crowd, to dare to be denounced, and hated, to dare to be different and independent. Without all that, we don't even know their names. Another book that I got from Lippmann was uh, Preface to Morals. Haven't really dug into this, but I did find something where he was talking about virtue. And one of the universal virtues, I think, across all cultures throughout human history is courage, bravery, standing for something alone, even at the risk of great cost. That's courage. Today, everyone just loves to stand up and boldly pronounce their opinions as if they're bathing in bravery, right? There's no courage in collective moral certitude. I'm going to repeat that. There is no courage in the moral certitude of the mob in joining something with a whole bunch of other people who all think the same thing. There is no courage in that. There's no courage in collective moral certitude. There is no bravery in joining a frothing, screaming mob. 
In fact, that breed of conformity is literally the antithesis of courage. Lipman again from the Basic Problem of Democracy, the Atlantic article. The more cocksure a person is, the more certainly he is the victim of some kind of propaganda. The more certainly he has been inseminated with someone else's doctrine, someone else's dogma. And one of my favorite lines from Mencken from American Credo. What lies beneath the boldness is not really an independent spirit, but merely a talent for crying with the pack. When he's most dashingly assertive, it's a sure sign that he feels the pack behind him. He hears its comforting baying and is well aware that his doctrine is approved. He joins something, whether it be a political party, church, fraternal order, or one of the idiotic movements that incessantly ravage the land because joining gives a feeling of security, because it makes him part of something larger and safer than he is himself, because it gives him a chance to work off steam without running any risk. With no risk. Courage does not exist. And all of this is disguised underneath what I call the sound and the fucktard's fury. Dressing ourselves up on social media, acting like we're all brave and outspoken, oh yes, look at me, is just a simple way to platform the ego, the id, and the wholly uninformed opinion, or recycled inseminated opinion and tribal venom. All under the guise of, look how outspoken and brave I am by saying all this with these millions of people behind me. This is a Lul's mob-based moral certitude, the boldness being encouraged externally, provoked by everyone else's example, reinforced by a tribalized sense of belonging. Again, there is no risk in the anonymity and guaranteed approval of a flock. Joining risks nothing. Being a cell in a huge organism risks nothing. And if you risk nothing, you lack Bravery. You lack courage. To stand independent and apart, courage is required, demanded, or it's impossible. Solidarity has its place, but not, my friends, in a conversation about independent thought and the corrosive effects of validation addictions, dopamine drip, intellectual sovereignty, and self-validation. Intellectual sovereignty, self-validation, and solidarity? Intellectual sovereignty and self-validation. They don't mix well with solidarity in joining a herd. Depending upon the herd for the validation. I'm going to wrap up the show with uh, one of the very first things in the uh, Walter Isaacson book on uh, Einstein, His Life and Universe. It's a great book. But I knew I was getting into something interesting with this guy. Unexpected. It's not why I bought the book, but it really applies to what I've been looking at and what I've been talking about. He says that Einstein remained consistent in his willingness to be a serenely amused loner who was comfortable not conforming. Independent in his thinking, he was driven by an imagination that broke from the confines of conventional wisdom. Further down the page, he said Einstein's nonconformist streak was evident in his personality and his politics as well. Although he subscribed to socialist ideals, he was too much of an individualist to be comfortable with excessive state control or centralized authority. His impudent instincts, which served him so well as a young scientist, made him allergic to nationalism, militarism, and anything that smacked of, you ready for it? A herd mentality. And toward the end of his life, he was asked by the New York State Education Department what, in his opinion, he thought uh, schools should emphasize. 
And his response was that in teaching history, there should be extensive discussion of personalities who benefited mankind through independence of character and judgment. It's exactly what I've been talking about here. He went on to say that accumulation of material should not stifle the student's independence. In that context, he was saying that critical comments by students, impudent students, <laughs> should be taken in a friendly spirit. Encourage the student to think. What we're talking about here is cumulative culture, adding to what's already been disseminated by previous generations, adding to the foundation of knowledge with an independent spirit. Long live impudence. He exalted to the woman who later became his wife. He said impudence was his guardian angel in this world. Finally, Isaacson says that uh, Einstein's success came from questioning conventional wisdom, challenging authority, and marveling at mysteries that struck others as mundane. This led him to embrace a morality and politics based on respect for free minds, free spirits, and free individuals. Tyranny repulsed him, and he saw tolerance not simply as a sweet virtue, but as a necessary condition for a creative society. Calm down there, liberals. I'm looking at you with your cancel culture right now. Shh. Finally, the last quote I'm going to give you from Einstein. He says it is important to foster individuality. He said, for only the individual can produce new ideas. Unquote. Rather than repackaging and rearticulating recycled ideas and putting them in new gift wrap. Only independence can foster new ideas. Mr. Einstein. Amen. You know, none of us are going to be Albert Einstein. None of us are going to be Galileo, I assume. But you know what? If you're going to mimic somebody, mimic that. Yeah, this is an expansive topic, isn't it? <laughs> I could go on. I actually think this is something that could be focused on on a regular basis. But some of the notes uh, as I record this tag on uh, Saturday, uh, February 29th. After listening to this, going through and doing some uh, editing on it, a few things that I wrote down here. H.L. Mencken and Walter Lippmann. At least at this point in my life. Uh, becoming some hundred-year-old heroes. And I mentioned that in the episode because they're defying validation and approval. When they wrote their stuff a hundred years ago, this had to hit like a flamethrower when the public got its hands on it. And it doesn't seem to me, again, I wasn't there and I've never interviewed them, I'm not having a seance here in my studio, but it seems to me that they were either oblivious to that or fought their way through it. And the reason I'm mentioning this, and I, I, I hesitate and to really mention this, and there's a reason I'm doing it at the very end, because I don't want people who are just sort of passive listeners of this to really get, get a whiff of it. Uh, but some of the stuff that I've been talking about over the last uh, week or so, especially down the line of independent thought and particularly validation, a lot of the material has come from books. A lot of the material has come from observation, both of other people and observation of myself. Validation has played a huge part in my life for reasons you're never going to know because I don't know who the hell you are and I don't really trust you. <laughs> but you have to trust me on this. I put a lot of work 
and done a lot of self-examination about what it does to people, how we need it, and what it does when we do not get it, and why it's so easy to fall into this mask-wearing trap of performing on stage for the crowd to get something back. I've taken the stuff that I've found about myself over the last 10 or 15 years, and notebooks full of it, and I've also sort of cross-referenced that with other material. Books that I've been talking about as far as the propaganda stuff goes and how that is exploited. There's this thread that runs, this validation thread that runs from people like uh, Nicholas Carr in modern day back to Jacques Ellul and how propaganda exploits that need for validation, that need to feel important, that need to feel accepted. And it goes back to Bernays. It goes back a long ways. It goes all the way back. I think you could tie that thread to the ankle of Gustave Le Bon and the mob. It's something I don't think, in my opinion, I do not think people are aware of at least enough. And to get there, you have to be able to turn that mirror around. They call it mindfulness these days. I guess that's a hip term. I hate it. I think it's gay, but mindfulness. Paying attention to your own psychological and mental processes. Paying attention to how you react in certain situations. How your mind thinks, how it twitches, how it just, the reflexive emotional a reaction you have to certain situations and what the urge is that you have to do to respond to it. It's incredibly important and it's incredibly, incredibly hard to do. And the reason that I'm inspired by people like Lipman and Mencken, but also George Carlin, uh, Dave Chappelle last year, I thought he was a wonderful example of that, getting up on stage in the face of a possible flamethrower. A wonderful example. Andrew Sullivan. I've got more on him coming. Uh, Martin Luther, you want to go back in time, we go back a few centuries, he was another one. He followed that, that track, that voice, he had an idea, he believed in himself, and he followed it. C- can you imagine the blowback Martin Luther was getting from the, the, the church institution in his day? I mentioned Galileo in this episode, obviously. Einstein, he's, he's sort of the 20th century avatar for independent thought. He revolutionized physics, for fuck's sakes, and he did it in four months. The thing that all of these people have in common, in addition to, obviously, a level of genius, more important to me is the virtue-level courage, their own original compass, and the guts to be the impudent iconoclast, having the courage to weather the institutional and inevitable public opinion storms. These are the people who hold those mirrors up to the rest of us. These are apostates whose inner voice and self-reliance serves as a form, uh, apparently, of self-generating validation, replacing what they're going to lack from having that, that, that group of people, reinforcing their ideas. There has to be something replacing that. It has to be some sort of innate belief in themselves so they can self-validate. That's the thing that I think I'm really interested in. How? What's the process of that? And can a person get to that point if they're not born with it? Yeah, that inner voice, that self-reliance, serving as a form of self-generating validation in times of public mockery and condemnation. Andrew Sullivan is the only person that I am following on Twitter. And I'm not just doing that so I can have one follower. I, 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 I don't want to say I idolize the guy, because I don't. What I like about him, though, is every time he puts out an article, which usually is every Friday, I don't know what he did. But he endures a shitstorm on Twitter. He is gang-raped on Twitter every single week, and I have no idea why. 
But regardless of why, and regardless knowing it's coming every single week, the guy can sit there, he can write his article, and he puts it out there. In the face of that public opinion storm, the mob, the gang raping, every single week, I cannot tell you how much I respect that. He goes on television, he goes on Bill Maher, and he will piss everybody off on that panel at some point because he can't be compartmentalized. He can't be thrown in a box. He is thinking for himself, and it pisses everybody else off because they can't quite figure out what to make of him. They can't quite figure out if he's an ally or an enemy because sometimes he's an ally, but sometimes he's an enemy. That's a sign of an independent thinker, somebody who does not agree or think out of loyalty. They think for themselves. They are loyal to their intellectual autonomy and independence. That's what I respect about him because regardless of everything else that happens, he is writing what he writes and putting it out there. That is the spirit of the iconoclast. That is the spirit of the apostate preaching against the doctrine. And in contemporary times, I can't think of anybody who is a better example of this than Andrew Sullivan. Whether I agree with everything he says or not, I love the fact that he's saying it, and I love the fact that it's coming out of his own organic mental processes. Rather than just something being repackaged, and as I said in the podcast, or I said earlier, being, you know, re-wrapped and re-gifted with some clever form of re-articulation. I respect the shit out of that. I do. And I got to be honest with you, I, I need to get there. I need to be able to get there. Well, you're not there already? No, not quite. If I'm going to identify a little shining city on the top of the hill that's at the end of the, this personal path that I'm on, I want to get there. I may never get there. But I'll tell you what, rather than imitate some ideologue, some doctrinaire, I would much rather, and I'd feel so much better about myself, I would much rather imitate somebody like that, somebody like Sullivan, somebody like Einstein, somebody like Galileo, Luther, Wycliffe. Go look up Wycliffe sometime. Had his bones dug up when he was declared a heretic. Standing up and facing the storm, all in the name of being true to who you are and what you think. You individually. That's the goal. And to my credit, I made a lot of progress on that front. (laughs) A lot. One other thing that I wanted to point out, at least the examples that I used in the podcast before this chunk, Einstein and Galileo. But these are all scientists. Now, they had, not to take anything away from them, Galileo was a scientist committed to provable facts, doing experiments, doing you know equations and mathematical equations to prove his theories right. And if they weren't right, the scientific uh, you know mentality is that you move on to something else. Yeah, well, this was wrong. Crinkle it up, throw it in the in the trash can. It's not really possible to engage Heights Elephant if you're a scientist. I shouldn't say that. Some people are still trying. That's for another podcast. So they have a bit of a built-in advantage, sort of. Again, not to take anything away from them at all. But what about if you're in the ideological realm and you're following that inner voice? That gets a little dicier. Karl Marx, Hitler. These people had some sort of internal voice. They had a very solid belief in themselves. They didn't really care about public opinion either. They put it out there. A lot of the same traits apply to demagogues or people who are on the other side of the good, evil, the God-devil parable line. 
that is a little bit dicier, and I don't quite know what to do with that. Hitler and Marx did this, but so did the Founding Fathers. They did something that was revolutionary in their own time. What is the determinant factor in which direction you will go with that? Again, I, I am not quite ready to dig too deeply into this, but I think it's tribalism. I think it's power and dominance, that human trait about you know the, 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 the need to dominate somebody else, to be in charge of somebody else, to impose your will upon someone else and feel like you have control over them. I think that's part of it. In contrast with people like the Founding Fathers, whose, I guess if you believe the American myth, their foundational principle was freedom and individuality, as long as you were white. I don't know. But I think that's really interesting, because I think there is a dark side of this. Jim Jones, David Koresh, the Heaven's Gate guy. I don't know quite how to square that circle just yet. There is a line there. And I think it probably, as I sit here and think about it while I'm talking, I think it probably uh, stems back to that mindfulness thing and, and checking out your motivations. Why am I doing this? Do I really believe this? Or am I telling myself and telling all these other people that I believe this because I'm power hungry and my ego needs to be fed? Or if I can get these people to follow me, that's validation. People are goofy. The human mind is both goofy and fucking fascinating as well. On that note, I have something else here that says comedy. It probably had something to do with stand-up. Maybe some of the people I saw in Chicago. I'm not 100% sure about that. I'm not going to bother with it. I think I've done enough. <laughs> so, there you go. Independent thought. Following the voice. Making sure the voice is genuine. We just found another wrinkle to that. Embracing impudence. I've had a hard time with that word, by the way. This will be fun. I had to edit that word probably 50 times during this podcast. <laughs> Because I keep wanting to say impotent. <laughs> impudent. They're two different words. If you're hearing me say impotent, hey, well, Einstein couldn't get his dick hurt? No, that's not what I mean. Impudence is defying authority, a contempt for authority, a lack of respect for authority. I've I finally figured out how to get my mouth to say it without having to think about it. <laughs> it took a long time to get there. Impudence. Ha! Yay! Go, go, Tanzilla. Yeah. All right, the SS Zilla is going to start to slowly shift course now. I may do a politics dump this week. I may do something about coronavirus. <laughs> Jesus Christ. I may do something about coronavirus as well. But I think next week I'm going to start to extract some of the agitation propaganda material that I did over the summer last year. I'm going to use that to encourage new listeners to get familiar with this material because that material is incredibly important as we deal with the agitation media complex, the for-profit agitation media complex in this country. I may also do a re-release of the Media 101 podcast. But the reason I'm going to do this is, A, to both re-familiarize uh, the listener with that stuff and to give myself an opportunity to go in and start extracting more material from Jacques Ellul's book, Propaganda. There is so much more in that book. I've talked about it. Propaganda, democracy, propaganda and truth, propaganda and information. When the means strangle the ends, all sorts of stuff. That is incredibly applicable today. Also, I want to dig a little further into Walter Lippmann to see how some of his stuff may play into this, and also Edward Bernays. Edward Bernays was the villain last year. 
I'm not 100% sure that he's any more of a villain today in 2020 than Oppenheimer is. I'm slowly coming to the conclusion, as you may have noticed in this episode, that uh, a lot of their thoughts on the fate of democracy and the hole in the psychological firewall allowing the propagandists to get in and exploit very malleable emotions and psychiatric states of the masses. I think they were dead on about a lot of this stuff, and I cannot sit here with any intellectual honesty and say the guy was diabolical. I don't think he was. I think he saw something. I think he saw something that was accurate. And what he did with it, okay, fine. But the foundational psychological principles are, I think, rock solid and extremely uncomfortable. So again, mindfulness and awareness. Holding on tight, tight to your intellectual autonomy. Detaching your emotions from the outcome. Detaching your emotions from the team in in an effort to see things as best you can. And then think about them independently. Protecting yourself from being bullied and influenced. Not everybody can do this, obviously, and I don't expect everybody to. I said that exactly the opposite is the the default setting. But if you're listening to this podcast, you at least have an interest in it. Hopefully, I've given some kind of a roadmap, maybe, for us to get there. I say us because, yeah, I'm still working on it, obviously. But I have a goal. Impudence. Ask your doctor if Viagra's right for you. That's just rude. Uh, Escapingthecave.com, that's my website. Make sure, I forgot to mention at the outset of this one, make sure that your podcast subscriptions, that you were subscribed to Escaping the Cave, the authentic Escaping the Cave podcast feed. That's your favorite podcatcher there. It's on all of them. Anything else? I started my music bed. Too early. Do-do-do-do. This is the Limbos, by the way. Band out of Chicago. They're fantastic. Leap day. Woo! March is coming. I just want to ride this bed out. It's the radio guy in me. (laughs) Till next time, so long.